Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, What Do You See? It's based upon the lectionary readings for January 17th, 2021. I am struggling to write this week. Sitting at my desk two days after a violent, seditious mob stormed the U.S. Capitol building at the incitement of America's sitting president, I confess that returning to business as usual is difficult. Like many of you, I am heartbroken. On the one hand, I can't believe what my eyes witnessed on my television screen two days ago. On the other hand, I know full well that what happened in Washington, D.C. was a predictable outcome of a long and reckless disregard for the truth. This is what happens when a leader and his people desecrate reality. This is what happens when human beings worship falsehood for their own convenience and gain. I know that it has become a cliché to say we live in a post-truth society, as if post-truth is a viable option for our survival going forward. But the fact is, it matters what our eyes see. It matters what we apprehend as the real, the genuine, and the faithful. When truth dies, people die too. Our readings for the second Sunday after the Epiphany are all about seeing. In the book of 1 Samuel, we encounter the priest Eli, whose physical and spiritual eyesight has grown so dim, he cannot see what's right in front of him. The psalmist describes a God who searches and sees us, a God who probes our secret thoughts, words, and ways, a God who beholds us when we're still unformed in the depths of the earth. In his letter to the troubled Corinthians, St. Paul urges his readers to see themselves rightly, to understand that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, not cheap and expendable commodities, but sacred vessels bought at a high price for the glory of God. And in our Gospel reading, Jesus sees Nathanael, sees into his heart, sees who he is and what he needs, under a fig tree, prompting Nathanael the skeptic to look past his stereotypes and see Jesus for who he really is, the Son of God. As I read and reread these texts in the aftermath of Wednesday's events, two lines stand out to me. The first is from our Old Testament reading. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. And the second is from John's Gospel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe I'm drawn to these lines right now because they echo something of my own anxieties. I have wondered this week if we, like Eli, live in an age when the word of the Lord is rare and transformative visions of God's just and loving kingdom are not widespread. As I watch violence and hatred erupt in my nation's capital, I fear that nothing good, redemptive, and just can ever come from this brokenness. But of course this isn't true. As Christians, we profess belief in a God who never stops speaking to us. A God who longs to reveal God's love in mercy, healing, and hope. Moreover, we know that God's capacity to restore and resurrect has no limits. There is no place, time, circumstance, or situation that is outside of God's capacity to redeem. Can anything good come out of Wednesday's atrocities? Can anything good come out of America's endangered democracy? Yes. This is the hope we cling to. 
the hope we must offer to the world at this critical juncture. But saying yes to God requires us to see rightly. It requires us to follow the truth wherever it leads, even when that truth hurts. It requires us to listen and to speak prophetically. It requires us to challenge our own assumptions about God and faith so that we can find the sacred in unexpected and even disreputable places. In our story from the Hebrew Bible, we meet a priest named Eli who no longer expects to see or hear anything from God, not because God has abandoned him, but because he can't find the courage, will, and moral fortitude to do what God desires. Eli's sons are also priests, but they are priests who have lost their way, priests who have made a habit of dishonoring God through extortion, greed, and sexual sin. When Eli fails to restrain his sons, God turns to the boy, Samuel, a child on the periphery, a child whose sight and hearing remain uncompromised by the political interests and machinations of his elders, a child who will tolerate an unfamiliar voice and an uncomfortable message without holding back. I've heard many sermons about how Samuel learns to listen for God, but I haven't heard any about the profoundly disconcerting truth God speaks to Samuel afterwards. But think about it. God calls on Samuel to prophesy the fall of the house of Eli, meaning God tells Samuel to name corruption in his own religious home, to call sin out for what it is, even as that calling out upends the institution that sustains him. What would it look like for us to do the same in this difficult cultural moment? What does truth look like now, and where and how are we being called to speak it? Some of the most disturbing images I saw during Wednesday's attack were images of mobsters carrying Christian signs and symbols into the Capitol building. Jesus saves. God, guns, and guts made America. Let's keep all three. I am tempted, like many progressive Christians, to simply disavow such images and move on as if they have nothing to do with me. What would it be like instead to ask a harder and more painful set of questions? Questions like, how has the progressive church in America failed in its prophetic duty to represent the Jesus of love, mercy, hope, and restorative justice in the public square, such that we've allowed Christianity to be co-opted in violent, hateful ways that grieve the heart of God? Where are the blind spots in our theology that allow white supremacy, bigotry, nativism, and populism to fester unchecked? Are we enamored of power? of proximity to power, of approval from the powers? How have we privileged personal piety over communal responsibility such that we spend more time agonizing over what we believe about God's grace than we do embodying that grace to the world outside our church doors? Epiphany is a season of light and revelation, a season of searching, discovering, finding, and knowing. I wonder what we can learn from the penetrating and grace-filled vision of God in these days. If Jesus were here right now, looking at what we're looking at, what would he see? In our reading from John's Gospel, we encounter a skeptic named Nathaniel who thinks he knows exactly who God is and how God operates. God's Messiah, he is sure, can't possibly come from a backwater town like Nazareth. Nazareth isn't good enough for the divine. The lection begins with Jesus going to Galilee, finding Philip and inviting him to, quote, follow me. 
Philip accepts the call without hesitation and then, brimming with excitement, runs off to find his friend Nathaniel. He finds him sitting under a fig tree. We have found him about whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth, Philip tells Nathaniel. But his friend under the fig tree isn't impressed. His religious assumptions won't allow him to see anything fresh or surprising in a simple carpenter from the wrong side of the tracks. Instead of arguing with Nathaniel, though, Philip simply tells his doubtful friend to come and see. When Nathaniel does so, he receives the shock of his life. As soon as he and Jesus see each other, before they exchange a single word, Jesus says, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And I saw you under the fig tree. Immediately Nathaniel moves from doubt to faith, from ignorance to knowledge. He experiences an epiphany. But this story at its core is not about what Nathaniel sees. It's about what Jesus sees. It's a story about Jesus' way of looking and seeing and about what becomes possible when we dare to experience his gaze. In this story, what makes salvation possible is not what Nathaniel sees in Jesus, but what Jesus sees in Nathaniel. Seeing, of course, is always selective. We have choices when it comes to what we see, what we prioritize, what we name, and what we call out in each other. The selves we present to the world are layered and messy, and it takes both love and patience to sift through those layers and find what lies at the core of who we each are. But there is great power in that sifting too. Something healing, something holy, something life-changing happens to us when we are deeply seen, known, named, and accepted. Jesus had a choice when it came to seeing Nathaniel. I wonder what would have happened if, instead of calling out Nathaniel's purity of heart, Jesus had said, Here's a cynic who is stunted by doubt. Or, here's a man who is governed by prejudice. Or, here is a man who is blunt and careless in his words. Or, here is a man who sits around, passive and noncommittal, waiting for life to happen to him. Any one of those things might have been true of Nathaniel. But Jesus looked past them all to see an honesty, a guilelessness, a purity of thought and intention that made up the true core of Nathaniel's character. Maybe the other qualities were there as well, but... Would Nathaniel's heart have melted in wonder and joy if Jesus saw and named those first? Or would Nathaniel have withdrawn in shame, fear, despair, and embarrassment? Jesus named the quality he wanted to bless and cultivate in his would-be follower, the quality that made Nathaniel a person of beauty, an image-bearer of God. Is it possible for us to see our present moment as Jesus sees it, Instead of deciding that we know everything there is to know about the political others in our lives, can we ask God for fresh vision? Instead of assuming that nothing good can come out of the cultural mess we find ourselves in, can we accept Philip's invitation to come and see? What would happen if we left our comfortable vantage points and dared to believe that just maybe we have been limited and hasty in our original certainties about each other, about God, and about the world? To come and see is to approach all of life with a grace-filled curiosity, to believe that we are holy mysteries to each other, worthy of further exploration. To come and see is to enter into the joy of being deeply seen and deeply known, and to have the very best that lies hidden within us called out and called forth. I write these words in hope, in fragile hope, but hope nonetheless, 
not because we're capable of clear vision on our own, but because we are held by the eternal promise of Jesus who said, you will see greater things than these. We will. We will see heaven open. We will see angels. We will see the love and justice of God. So don't be afraid. Don't hide. Don't despair. Live boldly into the calling of epiphany. See, name, speak, bless. God is near and God is speaking. Many good things can come out of Nazareth. For books this week, Dan reviews Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts by Christopher de Hamel. This is a book about visiting important medieval manuscripts, writes Christopher de Hamel, and what they tell us and why they matter. Unlike much art that we can enjoy in museums, for the vast majority of us, such historical treasures are totally inaccessible, behind lock and key in rare book rooms, and under the custody of imperious librarians. They are far too valuable and fragile for mere mortals to handle. De Hamel's magisterial volume of meticulous scholarship does the next best thing. He explores the fascinating biographies and controversial histories of 12 celebrity manuscripts that date from the 6th to the 16th centuries. The book includes over 200 pages of illustrations. His lineup includes not just gospel and prayer books, but also a text of astronomy, commentaries on Revelation and Isaiah, music, literature, and Renaissance warfare. Some of these books are downright dainty, whereas a 2,000-page Codus Amianatus weighs in at 75 pounds and required 515 calfskins to produce. The Book of Kells is arguably the most famous book in the world. If there is a single theme here, de Hamel says it is the sheer joy and pleasure of appreciating these manuscripts that are a combination of so many things literary text, artistic treasure, detective stories about their provenance, history, faith, and the element of pure chance in their very survival. We might not share the faith and piety that's reflected in them, but they nonetheless provide what he calls an utterly captivating experience. They have the power to gladden the heart and bring the distant past very vividly to heart. In his epilogue, de Hamel describes how as a teenager he became entranced with the medieval manuscripts that he encountered in the Dunedin Public Library at the southern end of New Zealand. Quote, the staff allowed me to take them out of their cases and I used to spend whole Saturdays turning pages with wonder and enchantment. Close quote. After completing his doctorate at Oxford, de Hamel spent a distinguished 25 years at Sotheby's in New York in their Western Manuscript Department. In 2000, he was elected as a Donnelly Fellow Librarian of Corpus Christi College at Cambridge University. He is perhaps the best-known paleographer in the world, having catalogued more illuminated manuscripts than any other person alive, and very possibly more than any one individual has ever done. For films this week, Dan reviews Rothko, Pictures Must Be Miraculous. This one-hour PBS biographical documentary opens with an improbable event in 2012, the day Mark Rothko's Orange, Red, Yellow sold for $87 million, which at the time was the highest price ever paid for post-war painting in the world. I think he would have been appalled, says his daughter Kate, who with her brother Christopher narrates much of this film about their father, Markus Yakolevich Rothkowitz. He was born into what is now Latvia, 
at the time part of the Russian Empire, and immigrated to the United States when he was 10. He earned a full scholarship to Yale, but dropped out his sophomore year and moved to New York City. For the first 25 years of his career, his son recalls, all his work was done at nights and on weekends, for he had a day job as a teacher. But around 1950, he and a few other painters, Jackson Pollock, Willem de Kooning, pioneered what became known as Abstract Expressionism, a movement that effectively moved the center of the art world from Paris to New York. He had finally found his own artistic voice, and what became one of the most recognized artistic styles ever, his color blocks, which looked like deceptively simple rectangles. The title of the film comes from a Rothko quote, A painting must be miraculous. I watched this film on Netflix. And lastly, on the second Sunday after the Epiphany, after a tumultuous week, Shaking Hands, a poem by Padre Gotuma. Because what's the alternative? Because of courage, because of loved ones lost, because no more. Because it's a small thing, shaking hands, it happens every day. Because I heard of one man whose hands haven't stopped shaking since a market day in Omar. Because it takes a second to say hate, but it takes longer, much longer, to be a great leader. Much, much longer. Because shared space without human touching doesn't amount to much. Because it's easier to speak to your own than to hold the hand of someone whose side has been previously described, proscribed, denied. Because it is tough. Because it is tough. Because it is meant to be tough. And this is the stuff of memory, the stuff of hope, the stuff of gesture and meaning and leading. Because it has taken so, so long. Because it has taken land and money and languages and barrels and barrels of blood. Because lives have been lost. Because lives have been taken. Because to be bereaved is to be troubled by grief. Because more than two troubled persons live here. Because I know a woman whose hand hasn't been shaken since she was a man. Because shaking a hand is only a part of the start. Because I know a woman whose touch calmed a man whose heart was breaking. Because privilege is not to be taken lightly. Because this just might be good. Because who said that this would be easy? Because some people love what you stand for, and for some, if you can, they can. Because solidarity means a common hand. Because a hand is only a hand. So hang on to it. So join your much-discussed hands. We need this for one small second. So touch. So lead. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 17th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.